Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Prospect Lives. Seven Voices on Modern Britain. I slept in a savannah under a pink pui tree. What's the best old farmer advice you've received? My mother's consuming passion for sport was a mixed inheritance. I behaved idiotically and just fell over backwards in the most unglamorous of ways. What do I say next? What do I really believe? It's a crisp day in Copenhagen. As humans, we can hardly live without the fire of hope. Welcome to Prospect Lives, our brand new podcast. I'm Alan Rusbridger, editor of Prospect Magazine, and I'm here to introduce our Lives section, a chronicle of disparate experiences of modern Britain, by a new family of regular prospect writers filling us in on what they're thinking about each month. We left our seven writers in March. Writer and actor Sheila Hancock was soothing her worries about the world with Beethoven's Cavatina, while farmer Tom Martin had just returned from a trip to a farming conference in the US. Jason Thomas Fornillier, who is an expert by experience in the asylum system, had enjoyed a night on the tiles with his neighbour Dimitri, while Mike Brearley the uh, former England captain of cricket was revisiting the long history of racism in his sport. This month we join Anglican priest Alice Goodman as she scribbles feverishly away at her Easter sermon, while Jen Zedder, Serena Smith, returns from a trip to Copenhagen, disillusioned both with the British sandwich shops and our stoic philosophy. Psychiatrist Rebecca Lawrence muses on whether the torture of anxiety masks an important emotion, hope. While for sports journalist Emma John, the death of cricketing legend Shane Warne leads to reflection on the recent loss of her own mother. So let's begin with Emma. An unexpected death can hurt even when we never knew the person. Within moments of hearing about Shane Warne, my cricket-loving friends and I were texting each other, no words to express how we felt except an impassioned collective, what? His sudden departure seemed impossible, even prankish. It was like being told Sydney's Opera House and Harbour Bridge had mysteriously disappeared, and revealed what a monumental and much-loved fixture in our sporting landscape he had been. The first person I thought to message was my mother, only to remember, in the nanosecond before I picked up my phone, that she was gone too. 
We lost her last September, two years after her leukaemia diagnosis, and my family are still in the stage of grieving where we tell everyone that we're doing pretty well considering. We focus on the positives, as mum would have done, feeling grateful that we could make the most of our time together and that her physical sufferings were few. Mum was the person who instilled my love of cricket, of all sport, and Warren had been right there when she did. It was 1993, an Ashes debut for both him and me. By the time I began following the action on the TV, Warren had already bowled the ball of the century, the corkscrewing leg break that bamboozled Mike Gatting in the first test at Old Trafford and began his legend. My mother believed, back then, that there might come a time when the England batsmen got the better of him. They never did. The following summer, she took me to my first game. It was, incidentally, hers too. Despite a lifetime of loving cricket, she'd never had anyone to watch it with before. In securing us tickets to the Saturday of the Lord's Test, Mum unknowingly started a tradition that endured for the following three decades. Over the years, we showed up at its gates annually to watch the England team lose, unexpectedly rally and then lose again. My mother's consuming passion for sport was a mixed inheritance. As well as a profound love and an enduring loyalty, she was passing on a future of inevitable disappointments, not to mention some problematic prejudices towards rival nations that would need uprooting in later life. My teenage obsession with cricket, and then swiftly any other game involving a ball, a stick or a track, plunged me into an emotional whirlpool. Only as an adult did I realise that my early experiences in sporting fandom were a safe space for the tumultuous feelings I would face elsewhere in life. Attaching them to cricket had given me a guide rope, with my mother at the other end showing me that it was okay to care deeply, while modelling how to keep a measure of perspective. It was mum who taught me, in the depths of despair about England's latest batting collapse, that this too would pass and that the most important thing a person can ever do is to pick themselves up and try again tomorrow. Immunocompromised as she was, my mother spent most of the pandemic confined to the house. But last summer, as her treatments failed, the doctors said it was up to her to weigh the risk of infection against what was important to her in her final months. Mum had no hesitation. Lords reopened to spectators after successive lockdowns, and if she was going to do anything, it was watch the cricket. Dad dropped us off at the gate for the start of the fourth day of England's test against India, while the stewards hovered nearby with a wheelchair. Mum waved it away and leaned on my arm as we walked to our seats, bathed in warm sunshine. It was a perfect day for lovers of long-form cricket, an old-fashioned, all-day tug-of-war between bat and ball, with India's batters digging their heels in and England trying everything to winkle them out. Mum had conjured up the lavish picnic that she always brought to games, and I had brought a bottle of champagne that we finished by lunchtime. We spent the afternoon giggling and the evening session cheering as England's bowlers finally made the breakthroughs they needed. I try not to think about this year's trip to Lords without her. After all, weren't we lucky to have that wonderful day and those extra years together and so much of life in common? But the sudden absence of Warney we were never shy to call him that as if he were a family friend, is forcing me to confront some new truth of grief, some sadness I hadn't been ready to acknowledge before. Because when I picture England's cricketing nemesis now, 
I don't just remember his greatest moments on the field. I imagine Mum bending his ear at a bar somewhere in heaven, telling him how her daughter fell in love with sport the same year he made history, as the poor guy is just trying to order a drink. For Sheila Hancock, having a fall constitutes a timely reminder of life before the NHS. Well, now I've broken my wrist. When I was asked to write a monthly column, I thought I would cheer up my readers with a chirpy look at the joys of old age. My first four efforts haven't been overly jolly, and here I go again. I cannot find the words to express my desolation about world events, so I will focus on my own petty problem. She has had a fall. That's how falling over is darkly described when you pass 60. In fact, I behaved idiotically and just fell over backwards in the most unglamorous of ways. Giving myself a pedicure, I was sitting sideways on my toilet, soaking my feet in the bidet alongside it. In the process of getting out, I stood up in the soapy water, one foot reached the tiled floor and slid forward and I crashed down. I was alone in the house, flat on my back, so I decided I would use my brilliant Apple Watch gadget for contacting the emergency services. Only then did I realise that my dangling left hand was in no state to deal with buttons. I will not detail my half-naked struggle on my bottom to reach my phone in the next room, Suffice it to say, I got to A&E at Charing Cross Hospital, where the person on the triage desk blanched slightly at the sight of my now bright blue, swollen, deformed arm. They took numerous awkward x-rays with me yelping in pain, watched by a stoic, silent, injured little boy. There was a lot of mmming and head-shaking from the young doctors. One said, you don't do things by halves, do you? which apparently meant I had broken both the big bones that hold your arm together. The ends were splintered and therefore difficult to join up again. He told me he would have to pull the bones forward and push them together. As he looked about ten years old, I cravenly asked if he had ever done that before. He then said it wouldn't hurt as he put a foot-long needle into the wound at which I let out a scream I had once used in Sweeney Todd, as well as a stream of spontaneous obscenities. One of the nurses gave me a small gadget like a vape that she assured me would render me oblivious to what was happening. Grasping at this unprepossessing straw, I inhaled frantically. It was bliss. In seconds, I was floating on a cloud of happiness, laughing and chattering in a fashion reminiscent of parties in the 1960s. I wondered why the medical crew were sweating. I didn't even realise that they had put a large plaster cast on my arm. I swear these new gadgets, replacing ineffective gas and air, make it almost worth breaking a bone. But it was downhill from then on. My fury at the hideous inconvenience of having only one arm, not being able to do up zips, buttons, unscrew jars, cut up food, wash, and above all, drive, 
makes me full of admiration of people who uncomplainingly suffer much worse disablement. I moaned about the weight of my cast, so they agreed to change it, which meant I met Stefan. He removed the old cast with a terrifying electric saw thing, then built a new one with the dedication of Michelangelo sculpting his David. We all looked with reverence at his work of art. Everyone in the trauma and fracture department of St Mary's Hospital, led by the beautiful Lily Lee, to whom I was referred, are expert, dedicated, loving, as well as desperately understaffed and overworked. All the lip service we gave to the NHS, all that clapping, has got to be followed by treating the workers from the cleaners to the consultants with the respect they deserve. I don't know what the answer is, but the people at the coalface do, and they should be the leaders of change. I am one of the few people left who remembers what life was like before the welfare state came into action after the war. People from my background couldn't afford to go to the doctor. If we did, it was a big occasion. We wore our Sunday best. We relied on remedies, some of which I still use. TCP, Vicks Vapor Rub on your chest, Carter's Little Liver Pills, compresses made with the weed borage, plus cod liver oil. Major illness was a catastrophe, as with my father's TB. I treasure the NHS. By the time this column is published, hopefully I will be on the road to recovery. Please God, our injured world will be too. While Sheila demands respect for those working at the coalface, Jason Thomas Fenillier explains how discrimination and violence in his cherished homeland forced him to make a big decision. My country, Trinidad and Tobago, is a paradise that most people don't know about. The people who live there hail from many places. Africa, India, Pakistan, Syria, Lebanon, China, Spain, France, Germany, the Netherlands and the UK. But I was born there, so I'm a Trini, which you may have guessed. Smiling and laughing is not a habit in Trinidad. It's a way of life. Back home, the open sand, the sea, the food and the music speak to every one of your senses. It's a place where you can never grow old. The legends and the stories are true. Carnival was born there. As was oil, drum, music. But let me not say too much. Trinidad is a place you must experience for yourself. I lost my father at the age of 12 to lung cancer, but I had a great down-to-earth hard-working family who gave me the foundation to achieve anything I wanted in life. Life changed when I came out to my grandfather and my mother when I was 15 years old. Coming out wasn't as hard as I thought it would be, but the mental pressure I put on myself, the fear of being a disappointment was agony. But my mother's steadfast, calm nature and my grandfather's wisdom centred me. My mother and grandfather 
died before my 21st birthday, sending me into a downward spiral into nothingness. Not all my relatives were as open-minded as my mother and grandfather. Some were unhappy with me being openly gay. Some neighbours and school friends that I had known since I was a little boy did not even acknowledge me. Until 2018, same-sex intimacy was criminalised in Trinidad and Tobago. Gay men could face up to 25 years in prison. After a legal challenge from an activist who had sought refuge in the UK, this law was declared unconstitutional. But most LGBTQIA plus people, especially those in poverty, continue to face harassment and violence and enjoy no legal protections against discrimination or hate crimes, which are common. Things were rough for me financially. There were family squabbles over assets and property that deterred me from reconciling with relatives. I was homeless for two years while going to school and working nights part-time in a supermarket. I slept in a savannah under a pink pui tree. I used public stand pipes for water and washrooms to shower and do my laundry. But I didn't let it stop me getting my education. I had made a promise to my parents and my grandfather. I graduated from college and attended university, obtaining distinctions in sociology and literature. I got myself a self-contained apartment and an upgrade in my job. I thought that things were getting better, and for a time they were. But when you shine, there are people who want to block you out like an eclipse. I was forced to leave several jobs due to discrimination. I was sacked from jobs because the religious beliefs of other folks meant they disliked my so-called lifestyle. Hate is a virus, and it infected every aspect of my social and private life, from being warned by landlords not to have any men over to my flat, to being evicted because of the homophobia of the other tenants. I kept my socialising to a minimum and a very small circle of friends and was often having arguments with those who didn't accept my sexuality. In 2012, I was stabbed in a homophobic attack. I am relieved that I survived. I have attended so many funerals for friends who weren't so lucky. But it was the straw that broke the camel's back. I lay there in hospital, looking at the ceiling, and all I felt was a wave of emotion building in me. I burst into tears. Would this always be my life, moving from post to post, never settling down, always looking over my shoulder? Accepted by few, hated by many, I couldn't live like this. Right there and then, I made the decision to be myself. I knew I would have to leave my sweet Trinidad to be free. It took a year of scrimping and saving and help from friends to save up the money I needed to make the journey to the UK. I made one last visit to my parents and grandfather's graves before getting on a plane that same day 
4th June 2014. I was in knots the entire flight. I couldn't sleep a wink. Then a memory popped into my head of a conversation with my grandfather. He said, Life's like a river, Jason. You have to let it, the river take its course. His words have comforted me to this very day. On arrival at Gatwick, it was a downpour of emotions from excitement to fear, but most of all, I felt safe in a way I hadn't for a long time. Arriving in the UK gave me back a sense of freedom I had lost, for which I will be forever grateful, and I'm not going to let anyone take it away from me again without a fight. While Jason reminisces on the joie de vivre of life in Trinidad, Jen Zeda Serena Smith enjoys the Higgit lights of Copenhagen on a visit to a friend. It's a crisp day in Copenhagen. I'm with four of my closest friends. We've spent the morning grazing on strawberries and drinking orange juice, and now we're mooching around the city centre, animatedly catching up on each other's work and family and love lives. I'm swaddled in a hat and scarf and a huge coat that makes me feel like the Michelin Man. The sun is shining and the sky is a piercing bright blue. I'm feeling very hygge. We're visiting Emma, who recently relocated to Copenhagen for work. She's been here for a few months, but until now the idea of her living in another country somehow seemed abstract and unreal. Actually being here, seeing her bike in the hallway, how she navigates the metro so easily, her fridge full of Danish food, suddenly makes it real. The five of us meander into a coffee shop. As a borderline caffeine addict, I instantly perk up. The richness of continental coffee is always such a welcome change from the watery, tasteless stuff available in Britain. Emma tells us the cafe we're in is actually a chain. What's the equivalent in the UK? Pret? Someone asks. I know immediately that there is no chain in the UK equivalent to this cafe. I look longingly at the fluffy ciabattas filled with fresh tomatoes, creamy mozzarella, pink prosciutto. There are golden pan au chocolat, buttery croissants, sticky cinnamon swirls and neat lines, and rows of cakes topped with fruit and cream and chocolate. The sad ham and cheese toasties we buy from overpriced coffee shops in the UK don't compare, and even our artisanal bakeries feel like a pale imitation. It's not just the coffee and cakes which are better here. There are big public squares and parks and swathes of pedestrianised spaces. There's no litter anywhere. The houses aren't damp and cold. The metro doesn't smell of piss. There's a palpable sense of community too. One morning, Emma, who lives on the ground floor, wants to keep the kitchen window open to get some fresh air into the flat while we're out. Some of us bristle at this. Won't someone break in? Emma assures us, no, it isn't like that here. Apparently, some people actually leave their babies in prams outside of shops while they go and do their shopping and retrieve their offspring without any issues. And people really live here, whereas in the UK it so often feels like we're just surviving, getting by, subsisting. We take pride in our stoicism and permanently stiff upper lips. The war ended nearly 80 years ago, but the legacy of blitz spirit and keeping calm and carrying on endures. The ability to grit your teeth and bear it is considered a sign of moral probity, and the result is our collective resignation to a shockingly poor quality of life. 
Wages remain stagnant while living costs rise. Our houses are damp and cold. Our government swilled wine while the rest of us went months without seeing family and friends. The French burn cars when things start to look bleak, but the British? We prefer to get on with it. This is why young people are so frustrated by the nonsensical suggestion that we could buy a house if we simply cut out avocados and oat milk lattes and Netflix in the gym. Discounting the fact that cutting down on small pleasures still wouldn't enable young people to buy a house. Vice recently found that you'd have to give up Netflix for over a thousand years to afford a deposit for a house in London. Why should we have to forfeit the things that bring colour and joy to our life on this grey, rainy island? Xenophobes and nationalists love to parrot the line, why don't you just move then, whenever someone dares criticise the UK? But it's a justified question. Why don't I just move somewhere else if I hate living here? Because it's home. My family and boyfriend and friends are here. I'd miss a good cup of tea and puddings with custard and streetly come dancing. There are slivers of time when life here is beautiful too like when I'm walking in the Malvern Hills with my parents on a bright Boxing Day morning, or sinking pints in a Leeds beer garden on a humid July evening. My flatmate Jen also reminds me that the grass is always greener, and there's definitely truth in this. I'm exceedingly grateful, now more than ever, that I don't live in a war zone. It's true that things could be worse, but equally, in the country with the fifth highest GDP in the world, our day-to-day -day lives could be so much better. While Serena is frustrated with low living standards in the UK, Farmer Tom fears our once leading food production standards are now under threat. What's the best old farmer advice you've received? Asked the Ontario farmer Ryan Campbell on Twitter early this March. Clearly, old farmers give good advice, or at least lots of it, as demonstrated by the more than 150 responses his tweet accumulated within 24 hours. The suggestions range from well-known nuggets such as if you do what you've always done, you'll get what you've always got. To the Norwegian, and I apologise for my enunciation, mantrenga aha is e megan, meaning you need to have ice in your stomach, which apparently means be patient. My favourite piece of advice offered by several farmers was a barn can build you a house, but a house will never build you a barn. This is a simple encouragement to spend on what brings a return. Investing in your farm, the barn, can bring you comfort, a house, but not the other way around. As farming in the UK moves into a more regenerative era, farmers with a passion for wildlife are seeing great results. Nature, from microorganisms to megafauna, is returning to the farmed ecosystem and bringing with it cleaner air and water, less flooding and reductions in atmospheric carbon. In the context of our sage farmer's advice, we're investing in the barn that is our local ecosystem. As consumers in the UK, we can be proud of our food heritage, largely because of the high standards driven by the European Union and more recently by our own lawmakers. But lately, there has been a worrying change in the rhetoric on farming that gives a glimpse into the conflicted priorities of our get Brexit done government, which is desperate to be re-elected and hounded by single issue pressure groups and newspaper hacks. Just a few years ago, things were quite different. In 2018, Michael Gove assured both the farming community and the wider public that all food imported to the UK would have to conform to the same production standards as our homegrown items. That's some statement 
from the man who was at the time head of the Department for the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, DEFRA. In the last 12 months, quick trade deals with Antipodean nations, however, have been championed by ministers who demonstrate a staggering lack of awareness, not only of UK farming practices, but also the importance of agriculture to rural communities. International Trade Secretary Anne-Marie Trevelyan crowed about the possibility of eating New Zealand lamb in the autumn. Surely someone at DEFRA could have told her that lamb raised in the UK under world-leading welfare standards is available in our supermarkets year-round. Incidentally, while the trade deals that our ministers have been grandstanding about do include clauses about food safety, the promised requirements to mirror UK welfare standards are mysteriously absent. The New Zealand Minister for Agriculture, Damien O'Connor, called the UK-New Zealand trade deal a great deal for New Zealand's farmers. While Anne-Marie Trevelyan said the deal would slash red tape, it was met with almost universal condemnation from UK farming groups like NFU Cymru, who said... The deal will grant generous tariff-free UK access for New Zealand's producers while securing virtually zero reciprocal benefits for farmers in Wales. More recently, the war in Ukraine is affecting world fuel and fertiliser prices, arresting supply chains and threatening to drive food prices out of the reach of the poorest in society. And meanwhile, our government has been running media campaigns offering £10,000 per hectare to convert farmland to forest in the name of that now clichéd buzzword, rewilding. There is great hypocrisy in peddling this slogan while hoping that we can import our national demand for calories just as we export the associated carbon footprint across the globe. This government's greenwashing will never build us a barn. Let's not be the generation, then, of Brits who bet their farms and lost. While Tom turns to the sage advice of old farmers on Twitter, Alice Goodman seeks inspiration from Preacher's past as she writes her Easter sermon. But my hope is the flower and the fruit and the leaf and the branch and the sprig and the growth and the germ and the bud. And she is the growth and the bud and the flower of eternity itself. Should I say that? Have they heard it from me before? These lines from Charles Peggy's The Mystery of the Holy Innocence, which always strike me as like reading Whitman through stained glass, push up through my mind every year when I sit down to write an Easter sermon. While there's hope, there's life. Is that Samuel Beckett? No, to my surprise, I find that it's Anne Frank. Easter is the central feast of the Christian year, the Sunday to which all other Sundays point. And yet I know that my sermon is only a tiny part of what's going on. It will be heard by very few and remembered by even fewer. It will fill all of ten minutes of the liturgy. The message of Easter, that Jesus of Nazareth was the complete expression of what it is to be God and what it is to be human. That he was crucified, dead, entombed, and after three days rose again, not resuscitated, but resurrected to a new life beyond our grasp, but not beyond our hope, has been embedded for centuries into the full sensory multimedia experience that is the church. 
The story is told all around us. As a child, Jean-Marie Aaron Lustiger, the late Cardinal Archbishop of Paris, was converted by two visits to the cathedral in Orléans, where he and his sister were evacuated in 1940. The first was on Maundy Thursday, and he was transfixed by the glorious flowers and the banks of lit candles. He had no idea, he says, what the people were doing as they prayed there. The next day he felt like going back and seeing it all over again. He found the cathedral empty, echoing, stripped bare. I did not know that it was Good Friday, he said. I experienced the ordeal of that emptiness. He got it. A predecessor of mine, John Carraway, made his contribution to the Easter message by arranging to have his own cadaver tomb, the latest fashion in the 1440s, placed beneath a new altar of repose, the altar where the reserved sacrament is surrounded by flowers and candles on the night Jesus spent praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's right next to the door to the Sunday school. The children usually walk past it without batting an eye. But one night, every year, we see without obstruction John Carraway's sermon. There is his body carved as a decaying corpse, as it may be in purgatory, looking up. Above it is the body of Christ, placed for adoration. Good one, Father. I can't top that. I have to try, though. That ten-minute jazz riff on the resurrection that gives a glimpse of a hope that puts all our fear and grief into context. The news presses in, and it's mostly bad. As it happens, this year I was commissioned to write a set of meditations on the Stations of the Cross for the composer Nico Muley and the harpist Parker Ramsey. It will be having its premiere at King's College Chapel on Holy Saturday as The Street. It ends, as traditional stations do, with Jesus being laid in the tomb. Station 14, the end of the line. What do I say next? What do I really believe? If Christ, who once was slain, ne'er burst his three days prison, our faith had been in vain. But now is Christ arisen. That's it. I write down the title. Everything before the but is bullshit. Psychiatrist Rebecca Lawrence explains why hope and anxiety can be surprising bedfellows. Anxiety, whether considered an emotion or an illness, may not sound that bad. After all, everyone gets anxious, and rightly so. Trying something new or difficult will naturally provoke anxiety. Sometimes the adrenaline can even make us perform better. While often useful, sometimes anxiety becomes heightened and unreasonable, triggered by every little thing, and occasionally by nothing at all. This manifests in different ways for different people, often with thoughts or behaviours that are essentially vain attempts to manage it. Some people avoid life, while others try obsessively to control it, neither of which is good. For me, anxiety is often a prelude to depression. All may be well, 
but then some small thing happens and knocks me off balance. I start to doubt myself and then I start to worry. I think about things over and over again, hoping that if I think about them enough, I will somehow solve them. Of course, that doesn't work. I often become convinced I have a physical illness and check online for the symptoms I'm suddenly sure that I have. This momentarily reassures me before I panic that I've missed something and return to Googling more conditions. It is hardly surprising that these ruminations lead to depression, which on its own feels bleak and unending. But when mixed with anxiety, I find it even more distressing. While I've often heard it said that depression and anxiety go hand in hand, which can be true, there is a fundamental contradiction in the two ways of thinking. Anxiety, with its focus on the future, holds a residue of hope, and with it a desire to survive. Depression is the loss of hope altogether. In a way, depression is easier. For me, it often involves lying on a bed, thinking of not very much at all. But if a bit of anxiety is added to the mix, it takes away the apathy, such that my thoughts become acutely painful. It makes me think that I could get better, that I ought to get better, but I don't know how. It makes me remember that I used to lead a happier life and feeds my worries that this will never happen again. Depression mixed with anxiety creates a hope that I know cannot be fulfilled, but somehow won't quite leave me. As a psychiatrist, I believe in both biological and psychological influences on mental health and think some people are more prone to anxiety, depression or other conditions. Both medication and psychological interventions can help in some circumstances, although not all. Sometimes I wonder whether anxiety can be self-perpetuating. I don't say this to dismiss it, but with the aim of understanding it. I sometimes find that when I feel anxious, I focus on being anxious rather than on why or what has triggered it. I rightly recognise the experience and feelings and can even start to worry about the fact that I'm anxious, moving into a kind of meta-anxiety. I don't think this helps. I've heard of other people doing this too, referring to my anxiety rather than what they're anxious about. This fear of anxiety can be debilitating. At the moment, there is a lot going on in the world about which we may all be anxious and sad, and social media channels it into a constant feed. For some people, anxiety becomes overwhelming and unmanageable. For many others, it is a frequent companion. It's very difficult to know when to normalise it, but it's very important that we do so because we all have to live with some degree of anxiety. Sometimes it can help to remember that anxiety isn't only about fear, but also about hope, even if that hope can be torturous and hard to recognise. Perhaps this is what depression shows us. Hope in itself can be painful due to its uncertainty, but the absence of all hope is despair. As humans, we can hardly live without the fire of hope. Anxiety often stokes it, while depression tries to extinguish it. As a psychiatrist, I can't experience exactly what my patients do, but I can try to listen and to use my own experiences to better understand them. 
It is easy to label depression and anxiety in the abstract and then not to hear the true content of people's worries. But how can we ever understand if we don't listen to the despair and more importantly, the hope? Thank you so much for tuning into our Prospect Lives podcast. Listen out to hear more from our family of writers in May and tune into our regular podcast, the Prospect Podcast, every Wednesday. And if you enjoyed hearing from our wonderful Lives columnists, why not escape the echo chamber and grab a copy of Prospect from the newsstand now? Or go to our website where you can enjoy writing from Samuel Moyne, uh, a professor of law and history uh, at Yale, Basma Kodmani, who reflects on Putin and Syria, Don Patterson, a wonderful poem, and many more. Goodbye, stay safe, and see you next time. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Acast anbefaler. Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider skrætter alle de der podcast og forklarer mig nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmarked. <tryk>